Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Real Treat for you today. We've been singing the praises of Echo Lands for quite a while on the podcast, and I have the illustrator, co-creator, uh, co-writer of the series, J.H. Williams, joining me today to talk about it. J.H., thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really, uh, really appreciate it. I've been a, a big fan for a long time from uh, Promethea to Batwoman and uh, what you and uh, and Hayden have been doing on Echo Lands is is just fantastic. So um, I do have to ask you, though, before we dive sure. into that, I, <laughs> I was looking at your bio in, uh, in preparation to, to do this, and uh-huh. I didn't realize that you had worked with Jimmy Palmiotti way oh, yeah. back on a milestone project, yeah. Deathwish, back yeah. in the day. So I went digging up my issues, and I was looking at the style, and there are flashes of you know, where you have come from. Have How long has it been since you've gone back and do you cringe when you go back and look at that early work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting look, going back and looking at old stuff. Cause like you, of course there's tons of things I hate that I did, but then there's sometimes something that surprises me too. You know, they're like, uh-huh. where I'm like, ah, oh, that actually worked, you know? Um, uh, some of the stuff in death wish, there's some interesting things that, we did. It was cool to work with Jimmy. Uh, he actually also inked one of my Judge Dread covers too um, when I did that stint. But yeah, going back and looking at some of the very first things I did is it's always you know, emotionally challenging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, sometimes it can be pleasantly surprised. So, as an example, the new um, milestone. Um, compendium that came out right yep has uh one of my blood syndicate issues in there mm. which is one of the first things i ever did over at dc and i knew it was going to be in there uh 
but when I got my copy, I would flip through it to, to take a look at it because I haven't looked at it in years. Right. And I was looking at it and I was like, it's actually surprisingly didn't make me vomit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's some stuff in there. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It, parts worked, you know, better yeah. than I can remember. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing when I was looking at, at Death Wish there as far as the storytelling sensibilities, it was recognizable as you. And then there were some panels and some transitions that you did where I was like, yeah, I totally see that it's, it's JH. Um, other parts of it, just, it felt like you were sort of, you know, finding your way again, it, you know, yeah. so early, so early in what you were, what you were doing. So. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I didn't mean to put, to put you on the spot there. I just oh, wanted no, that's to, fine. to, I don't, to bring that it up. bother me at all. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, it was so interesting, but, but let's get to uh, the reason you're here. Um, I know this is a project that you and, and um, W. Hayden Blackman have been working on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Hayden is a, a collaborator you've worked with. You know, I mentioned Batwoman. Uh, he, he was a co-writer on that with you. Uh, so this has been gestating for a long time. And I really feel like it's some of the best work you've ever done. Oh, um, you. Before we get into kind of how, how you feel about the way the first arc went, why don't you let everybody know, kind of in your own words, what's the elevator pitch for the series? If, if they're not familiar with Echo Lands, uh, <laughs> how, how do you uh, describe? I know it's a big, it's a big task. It's a big world. <laughs> I'm sure uh, but, I have something yeah. written down somewhere that... <laughs> <laughs> spells it out but uh uh basically our tagline like that we used on some of the advertising it's um we we would say the story uh of earth's last war starts with hope's sticky fingers mm. and hope red hood is a thief that lives in a world that seems really chaotic and this is a mishmash of any genre you can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and she steals an artifact that will lead to unlocking the secrets of her world, all while leading to a, a massive conflict that will change everything she understands about her world. Yeah, that's a, it's a great way to put it. And I want to, I, I reread it uh, last weekend in preparation to talk for talking to you and there's so many influences that you can pull out and i, I know we're of a, a similar generation so i'm really curious about that but before we get into some specific themes and and there's so much to it because again artistically you've pulled from a lot of places and, and narratively as well uh but you know you have six issues under your belt the first arc uh how do you feel that it was received like are you are you really uh, uh happy with how it all came out yeah i think um I think the first six issues set out to do what we wanted them to do. Um, of course, things move in ways that surprise you when you're in the writing process versus your original outline. Mm-hmm. But any of the things that we altered along the way of actually writing the scripts made the story better, I think. Um, uh one of the things I think might surprise some people when they read it is, is we've created such a strange place full of all these things. And, you know, there might be some readers that get frustrated with the fact that we don't give them the answers at the end of volume one, <laughs> you know, but we always set out for this thing to be a long form storytelling very much in the nature of epic storytelling mm-hmm. and epic storytelling those are big. Those are those are big stories. They take volumes to get the full picture of everything it's supposed to be, and so 
I, I have to keep that in mind when I look at what the first volume accomplishes. And I think what it does successfully um, is really set the tone and the stage of what this world can be. Mm-hmm. So everything that we show you in volume one isn't everything that is the echo lands, but it, 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 it hits home hopefully to the reader of how broad ranging this thing can become in terms of what might find here. Um, and I also think we were, I, I'm happy with how we set up um, the characterizations that develop over the course of the six issues, each of the cast members, I think along the six issues, you start to really feel um, you understand them more. Um, uh, of course, hope's past is the one hope and course pasts are the ones that are the most mysterious at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but that all will have revelations later as we go. Um, uh, as far as the re- reception from the readers I've heard from um, directly, they seem to really love what we're doing. Um, I don't get to hear from a whole ton of readers. Uh, the market has moved in such a way where I don't know how much readership communi- tries to communicate uh, with creative teams. I mean, there'll be social media and things like mm-hmm. that. You'll get some interactions, but you don't get a lot of opportunity to talk to a lot of folks. Um, we did get a lot of positive letters. Um, people seem to be really uh, enthused and surprised by some of the things we've chosen to do um, and are uh, excited. Uh, I got a few letters from people when issue six came out recently that uh, were kind of telling me they were surprised that they still feel the same level of excitement or more so after issues reading issue six as much as they did issue one. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful to hear. Right. Right. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm sure there's some readers out there like, where is this thing going? <laughs> you know? But that's the whole, the whole, you know, process of storytelling is, uh, is, for me, like when I read comics, I'm in for the ride, you know, for the journey, not just where, not what the end result is going to be, but the whole, the whole thing of it, the experience of going along for that ride. And hopefully we can, you know, convince people that's what they want to do, that they want to read, go along for the ride wherever we're going to take them. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's, it's a good point because like I said, I did reread the whole thing recently and I got, I got even more out of it going back and rereading those early issues with the knowledge that, you know, you you and Hayden had been adding to the story and your, your art is just so epic and beautiful. Oh, thank you. you know, um, and, and, and you and I both know, you know, having grown up reading comics, how much more expensive they are, you know, relatively. Yes. yes. So the fact that this is something I feel like you can go back and reread multiple times, enjoy the art multiple times. It's really more value for your for the comic dollar for for your average reader as well. I hope so. I mean, that's what we set out to do. I mean, that's that's what I've always hoped to set out to do with every project I've done mm-hmm. is to is to work on things that reward rereading. Mm-hmm. You know, that you discover new things in it. Uh, particularly as the further you get into the story, and the more revelations you have, or the more details you understand, when you go back and read things, you're like, oh, they 
that that author right there, he he pinged that right there, and I didn't catch it. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's it's I love discovering that for myself as a reader when I see that sort of thing because it it shows that the the storytellers are trying to think it out and they're trying to um to make sure the pieces are moving the way they should you know yeah that payoff is very rewarding to be able to go back and and it's even better when it's done like you're reading the the revelation and you don't even have to go back you're you remember oh that seed they planted is so is so fantastic um well, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the title. You named it Echo Land. So for me, you know, you, you, you've described it as this mishmash of worlds. I mean, we see echoes of, of our own, you know, real world San Francisco and, and whatnot. And then so many different genres, like you mentioned, uh, but also in terms of the characterization that you mentioned for these characters as this, the arc went on, we learned more and more about them. And in a way that they, they kind of echo some genres echo things we're familiar with universal monsters or Chicago gangland or uh, a a, a Hun warrior. So it uh, is the title echo lands. Is it meant to both evoke that idea of this world that has echoes of, of our own world and genres, but also in terms of the characters and their origins? Yeah, very much so. I mean, without, without giving away what the big secret is behind this place, because that, I, I don't want to drop a bunch of hints about that. Yeah, no spoilers. No spoilers. We want to yeah, read. <laughs> because it's very when that when that happens, everything gets what you think you know gets turned completely sideways. But um, but yeah, we very much wanted a title that spoke to the themes of the book, all the way from the types of characters we're sh- we're choosing to show uh, to the various genres. You know, treating them all as recognizable archetypes but filtered through the lens that we we've created um and yeah so it was very important for us to feel like people could well, see something in there with a character or a genre and go i i understand where that's coming from mm-hmm. um if they don't get the reference it still works because it's butted up against other things that are unique unto themselves as well and so you understand it's still a mishmash even if you don't understand where the origins of the mishmash comes from and that's what's so fun about this kind of you know project is that those things can happen you know um but in terms of being echo you know like echoes when we first developed the project we didn't actually call it echo lands um that came probably <clears throat> probably before we started fully pitching it, I think Hayden and I, we knew we wanted to tell Hope's story. And that's where, when you open up the, the book on the inside front cover, it says Hope's Crucible. Mm-hmm. But we also understood at the time when we created the, the content that we were creating content that could exist outside of her story. You could go in any, follow any number of characters even characters we might not have invented yet um, and follow their story within this world. And that's what led us to like, well, maybe we should uh, think about a different title. Originally the working title was Hope's Crucible. And we, we decided to call it something else that was more broad um, that spoke more to uh, the themes of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of, you know, establishing a, a rich world, 
where it's, it, you know, obviously there's a lot more stories than just hope stories to tell. I, I think the back matter that you and Hayden put in where you have the, the journalist who's uh, interviewing the wizard, um, that really illustrates that very well. I, I'm as in, interested in the, the kind of that prose piece in the back. Cool. You cool. know, it's, it's very rich and very detailed and telling it through the, you know, the narrative voice of this, this journalist uh, who's trying to, you know, be objective and, and be a good journalist in, in, in a way <laughs> more so than a journalist, you know, nowadays. Um, but I think that really works as well. Have, have readers really respond to that, uh, that back matter uh, positively as well? I think so. Uh, there's been quite a few people I've heard from through letters that talk about, uh, especially now that we're, we've gotten this far, how much the back matter interview is aligning with the plot. Mm-hmm. Like there was a couple people that were surprised because they, the way we first present the interview section, you don't know when that's taking place. Mm-hmm. And along the way, we start to fil- filtering little tidbits. They're like, Oh, this is happening at the same time as everything else. And so it makes it, yeah, it's an, it's an interview for a magazine, but it's also got its own story narrative, which I find fascinating. I think people are gravitating to it, uh, to it more. And now they see that's going on. Um, and uh, that we're going to continue doing that in, in uh, arc two and so on all the way through um, whether the interview will remain being Taros Demone, we'll see. Uh, but um, I, what I find cool about it creatively is getting the opportunity to write those scenes because it allows us to drop in little tidbits of details about the world that you're just not going to get in the main narrative without mm-hmm. it feeling forced in. Um, and so you're getting little clues about, Oh, there's a bigger historical context that this villain is interested in. Well, what is that? What does that mean? And he's seeking out the, you know, the mysteries of his world and, that there's a forgotten history um and now will you know obviously is extremely important as we go yeah well the other part of it like you said is is the ability not only to drop those hints but we get more of a sense of who who tarot taros is and uh, you know exactly. as you mentioned as it's lining up as you know the gem is stolen and uh hope and her band are on the run and things don't go the way they want his you know things with his daughter and what have you that anger filters through the, the back matter story like you said having it align because I mean, and you know this as a as a creator, uh, the real estate on the on the page is so you know it's so yes. important, and the fact that you can give us extra, because honestly, Taros hasn't shown up in a lot of panels in, in the main story, but yet I still feel right. like I know who he is. I know right. That's right. That was another reason why we felt important and a cool feature to do. So, like you know, of course, some of the uh, inspiration for doing it in the first place comes from other comics that we Hayden and I love that would have little key uh, back matter features uh, involved in, in the overall texture of the, of the comic series. So that was, you know, part of our inspiration, but we also love that it allows us, we made the decision relatively early on to do these interviews with, uh, with Taros in order to, for people to get to know him more because the way the story is constructed, you're, you weren't going to be as involved with him as much because he's not in direct confrontation on a physical level Mm -hmm. throughout the entire tale. So 
And so he's very aloof in that way in the main body of the story. And so this allowed us to, like you said, develop his character and also allow, allows us to show that he's just not uh, evil for evil's sake. Is he power hungry? Of course he is. He's very power, power hungry and uh, wants to control things, um, particularly against anyone else who might be like him. You know, we have little clues in there that he's hunted down others and they have disappeared, (laughs) you know, uh, which is very much about him exercising control and wanting to be dominant. Uh, So his motivations slowly get spelled out in those sections, which I think is really cool. And and I like being able to do it in the in the interviews uh, because we can do it so concisely. Um, rather than eating up a bunch of comic pages where he's, you know, having a speech, you right? Know? It yeah. just would seem so cartoony in a way. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it really works on really works on that level. And um, so, I, let's do this. I, I have a few uh, things that I, that I pulled out that I yeah. that I think are 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 uh, are inspirations for the story. So if you have any comment on it, on any of them, or you can tell me, no, I, I didn't think of that at all. So obviously in terms of, and I've said this many times when we reviewed it, in terms of kind of the eclectic group that Hope has put together, I get a real sort of D&D feel, you know, oh, like Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Is that, was that at all on your and Hayden's mind when you were developing the group? Uh, a little bit, but not necessarily, I could see this being a really good role-playing game for mm-hmm. sure. Tabletop role-playing game. Uh, Hayden comes from the, the bulk of his creative career comes from working in the video game industry. Mm, okay. So, uh, so some of those sensibilities are creeping in that way as well. Very much feeling like, uh, an adventure game type of setting. Um, so, but for me, I, like, I, I don't know as much about video game creation as he does. So I kind of like, you know, he, that's his, that's his forte. Right. Uh, for me, I, I saw early on how much this could translate into some form of game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up playing D and D a little bit, not as much as uh, some friends of mine. Um, so it, that those elements definitely struck me as we were developing this cast, that diversity of cast, which would make, you know, the, how easily it could translate to a game, but we've discussed, you know, it being able to translate into lots of things, not just, you know, Hayden always makes fun of what we've done. Cause he said, like, if we try to turn it into a video game, it'd be the most expensive video game ever created <laughs> because trying to map out all the different styles to, for uh-huh. it to work, to feel like the book. So a role-playing game in terms of logistics would probably be easier to pull off. Uh, but we could see it being even novels. Um, mm. We easily could see novelizations of what we're doing too, especially as we get further into what Echolands is and you could, and people could start to see, oh, it would be, it'd be so cool to just stay in this one land mm-hmm. and focus on one character for a long time and just do a series about whoever that is. But it's got that aspect to it too. So it, it feels like it could be endless in terms of the, the stories to be told. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It really is a, a good example of what comics does so well, you know, things that would be too expensive for a video game, too expensive, maybe for a live action film, 
comics is the perfect medium. You know, if you could think of, as long as you can draw it and, you know, you and Hayden can think it up, you know, yeah, exactly. it, could, it could be on the page. Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure this had to be an inspiration, especially when we talk about Treasure Island, uh, Kirby and Fourth World, right? Uh-huh. Huge yeah. inspiration. Yeah, for sure. So the early on stuff involving anything we've done for Echo Lands you know, I've mentioned this in interviews before that hope and various elements um, of Echo Lands were thought of when I was a kid. Mm. So things like, you know, Kirby and Fourth Rome are definitely inspired from the, uh, the inspiration for those are very obvious. Um, but, you know, Romulus originally i think started off as this gestation this gestation of an i character idea i had for a character named lazarus who was um i envisioned him as some sort of futuristic roman soldier type character um uh and then as hayden and i started working on the stuff um that character became a different character that we now know as romulus and the whole uh, Kirby aspect really stepped forward at that point. Um, uh, primarily because I, I, it was almost like a gut instinct decision for the Kirby part. It wasn't methodically thought out as like, oh, we have to hit a Kirby influence here. It just felt naturally right when you thought of the character and that, you know, especially naming it fourth Rome and so on. Um, so yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how stuff evolves from you know the germ of an idea from when you know twenty years ago, thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, not to get too spoilery for those that haven't read it, but I'm I'm looking forward to the dynamic now that Romulus has kind of joined the group, yeah. having but you know having betrayed them, his history with Hope. You know, obviously they were a couple way back when. Now she's with Core. So uh, I imagine you and Hayden are going to have some fun playing with that dynamic uh in future arcs yeah um that uh um trio of characters hope core and romulus was something we was the the relationship relate the relationship between the three of them was something we had planned early on and that's going to play a big role as it goes along um uh and for especially for decisions hope has to make uh as she, as revelations in the secrets of the world are revealed, um, who those two people are in her life, Cora and Romulus, are quite massively different from each other. Right? Yeah. So, um, so that that triangle was something we always intended to explore, and what the feelings are surrounding that. That uh, we're looking forward to getting getting into it. We've just kind of hint, hinted at things here and there, like you know. Obviously, they have a past. Core knows of the past. Maybe even was mixed up in it. Uh, Romulus obviously feels betrayed by her, for, uh, and so I think that you know his sense of betrayal from her from the past and his opportunistic uh, pirate mentality. You know, he's like, "Well, I'm going to betray her." Mm-hmm. You know, when that the opportunity presented itself, he thought he could get something out of betraying her. Uh, so there's a lot, uh, we're hinting at a lot of stuff there, you know? 
Yeah, I can't wait to can't wait to read it. And I love the way that that narrative echoes. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about the narrative echoes in terms of how it influences the visual because I couldn't when I think about that that trio that triangle as you put it it echoes the shape of the gem, right? It's a triangle. Yes, that, right. that's, that's just, yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me. Uh, but, but uh, moving on to another, uh, and this one, again, very obvious. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of these ideas thought up as a, as a kid. I know when I was a kid, I loved the universal monster films, right. And you, you take uh-huh. it so far with the universal monster film influences here that whenever a character inspired by that world is on the page, they're in this lovely, beautiful grayscale. Talk to us a little bit about the Universal Monster uh, inspiration. Um, A lot of that developed from conversations with Hayden. Um, As a kid, I liked the monster movies and stuff, but it didn't really have any of my original old, old drawings that I had. There was nothing monster movie like other than my original ideas for what Taros was going to look like. Mm. Um, uh, Actually, Taros became... Um, sort of an amalgam of two different characters that I had thought of as a kid, neither of them looking like the tarot we now know, but one of them was very much on the kind of horror side, but more like fantasy horror. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as the direct universal monsters influence, a lot of that came from Hayden. He loves that stuff. Mm -hmm. Huge monster movie fan. Um, And uh, so when we talked about it, of course that excited me too, because I, as soon as we started talking about doing a character like Rosa or the, the land horror Hill, I was like, Oh, we instantly, I got to do the black and white monster movie, black and white horror comics from the seventies kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, and what's fascinating as we went along in the writing process. So horror Hill and Rosa were always sort of in the original outline but the role of that stepped up in the writing process um, to where she became much more of a direct um, um, antagonist to hope at the beginning uh, of our, of our story. And it's cool that it developed that way because she's such a fascinating character and allows us to have more screen time with toying with those styles and stuff, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. And the other thing I find interesting is it, it's not just uh, Hope's group that that has ties to that with Rosa, you know, Romulus as well. Yeah, uh, with with Torch Grinder. So that's uh, that's fantastic. And then yeah. so and this is the werewolves too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So this next uh, this next inspiration got to be my favorite. Um, so I I had Shogun Warrior, the two foot tall ones, as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did, did you have those as well? Yeah. I wish I still did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, seeing Rabbit and like as soon as um I can't remember the, the character's name. Uh, but as, yeah, yes. As soon as he shows up on the page, I immediately was like, Shogun Warriors. This is, <laughs> awesome. this is awesome. fantastic. Uh so that had to be a lot of fun too. And and not only did you give us that aesthetic. Your the idea that you and Hayden came up with uh, for why there's no humans there, like your the take you guys have on AI is fascinating to me because it, it feels like it has some uh, Isaac Asimov like three laws influence that this yeah, AI yeah. you know they've separated themselves because they're influenced by that that three laws. But with the Shogun Warrior aesthetic, like like how did that whole how did you guys come up with the idea of of mixing those because it's just fascinating. 
I don't know. It was sort of kind of spontaneous and on the fly. Um, a, uh, the whole idea of a giant robot being part of the story uh, really kind of was a, a little bit of a last minute f- decision. Um, uh, I think in the original outline, we, Rabbit actually wasn't going to live. He wasn't going to make it. But when we decided to not kill him, and we were like, I don't know. It's sort of like this, either Hayden or myself quite often will just have a what if question. Mm-hmm. And so the what if question surrounding this is like, okay, well, we don't kill Rabbit. He gets lost. Where does he end up? And for some reason, it probably had a lot to do with the fact when I, when we were writing that stuff, I was reading uh, Tezuka's Astro Boy. Okay, yeah. And But then I had, like you said, you know, that love of giant toy robots comes into it too. And I think I came up just randomly like, oh, we, it, this would be cool to do a, a, a story that follows the, the adventures of a boy and his r- robot. Mm-hmm. And that probably that led to conversations to create Meta Maru Mountain. Uh, and I'm glad that we did all that stuff because not only is it a big surprise, uh, it also has given us an opportunity to when we revisit these characters, we get to see other parts of the Echo Lands that we wouldn't get to see um, that we hadn't necessarily planned on. So it was all like new invention stuff. Um, and the whole idea of the robots being able to be autonomous and have their own personalities, but yet at some point they will have to join this almost hive mind of robotic identities and become this one thing, part of this thing called the Bancho. Uh, I can't remember exactly where that came from, um, but it is very much like something that you might see in an Asimov thing. Mm -hmm. And what it, I think what I love about the whole idea is here's the simple idea of a giant robot, this land of giant robots. They remind you of this nostalgic hit of, you know, old Japanese TV shows and toy robots and all that kind of stuff. And you get that hit of nostalgia for, from that because of the visual and the way they present themselves. But then we throw that and mash it up with something that's more, harder science fiction mm-hmm. you know that's what makes that so interesting and work and what and what is it going to mean for Ryoshin or Ryoshin when he now that he's left he's made the decision to leave and has been told he can never come back but can, is that true can can he ever return you know um that's that whole thing is super cool especially because his personality is so like you know right <laughs> versus rabbit rabbit sort of like a little bit manic and is uh easily willing to get into trouble you know yeah well that's part of what is so interesting to me that almost that dichotomy that you that you guys built there in uh, metamaru mountain because you know it's such a clinical decision to have no humans there yeah. um, and for, for, you know, these robots to say, Hey, we're an AI and in every fantasy story and every fiction story, whatever AIs eventually destroy humans. So we decided to, 
you know, lose our knowledge of humans, have no contact with humans. But in a way, the decision that Ryoshin makes is, is so kind of emotional, like, like he cares about this kid. Yeah. Uh, and then also when you're talking about the band show, you know, and, you know, the, the bodies die and, and, and you know, the, the personalities or, or whatever you want to call them for the, for the robots join that hive, even if it's for a short period of time as uh, in the story, we see even when they're talking that, you know, and it was fascinating, great, the way you guys did it, the different versions or different identities of the robots finishing sentences in a different way yeah. with different colors. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, here we are, they're, yes, they're clinical, yes, they're robotic, yes, they're an artificial intelligence, but they're clearly different and have different, you know, ideas. And, and does that, like, where does uh, intelligence stop and emotion start? And like, right. yeah, like yeah. you were saying earlier that, that Echolands lends itself. I mean, I would read a whole like series or novel just about, you know, these, this AI. Right. It's so fascinating. Yeah. That's one of the things I thought, thought it was important and Hayden did too, I'm sure is, yeah, we were going to show you this land of giant robots, but we didn't want to do um, robots that didn't seem like they were, we wanted them to seem like they're alive. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, they have their clearly in such a short amount of time, we spell out they have their own distinct culture, but we wanted them to seem like they were alive. Um, and that was super important because if we're going to have have one of them become a main character, one of the main side characters, there you had to have something more to engage with than just this clinical analytical machine. Um, uh, so that just from a writing standpoint, that makes it super fascinating. The The idea of having them separate themselves from humans, I think that probably developed because, like I said, some of the, the Meta Maru Mount stuff we hadn't thought of uh, until really late in the game. And so I think from a practical standpoint, we had to be like, well, we're showing this ro- robot land, but why haven't? Why didn't we see a bunch of giant robots that look like that in the previous issues, particularly in San Francisco? That's this hub of everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so that gives us a, a practical answer as to uh, to that, you know, um, which is fun and always a challenge because you're like, okay, we're going to show something new that we might not have considered. We have to think about, well, why haven't we seen it yet? You know, that that's always creatively challenging. Uh, and fun. Yeah, I would not have known that you guys came up with it later because it, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, well, what one last uh, aesthetic or that I that I sort of uh, picked up on, and th- this one may be a little more uh, obscure, and I, I could be wrong about this, but the other thing about Echo Lands that was so fascinating to me was this mi- mix of sort of like metaphysical or spiritual or, or almost magical. Yeah. Um, but then technology, but then it's not tech, it's technology that although it's advanced, it feels old and ancient. And I got a little bit of a Dune feel. Uh, interesting. Like, you know, Frank Herbert's Dune, because a lot of that, you know, it's advanced and they have space travel, folding space and, and everything. But certainly, especially on Arrakis, it, everything feels a little old and an old, a little bit old, run down. So uh, was that necessarily an influence that you were that you guys were thinking of? It wasn't for me. I don't know if it was for Hayden. Um, I just knew it, creatively, I, I just knew that the, any of the technologies that we showed, I feel like 
had to be either remnants or expansions of whatever this place was before, mm. whatever led to the Echo Land's existence, um, that it was tied in somehow. Uh, so there's little things that I'm doing here and there that tie in visual things um, either overtly or subliminally or subtly. Mm-hmm. As an example, in when they go to the bottom of the ocean and they're in that orb, the, the designs of that orb should remind people of the designs of the first robot, the maintenance robot that we see in issue two. Um, and then it also should remind people of uh, the orbs, the connected orbs that they see at the, in the flash forwards on p- the first page of each issue. Mm-hmm. There's a, a design aesthetic that's similar between these things. And that's all very um, on purpose. So um, for, for me, yeah, all the technology needed to feel like maybe it all wasn't 100% invented by the current denizens yeah. that has been now adopted uh, and being used or expanded upon in some way. Yeah, that that's that makes a lot of sense. Well, as long as we're talking about visuals, we, let's kind of pivot over to that because it's, I mean, it's just gorgeous. Like I said at the beginning, some of your your best work. Um, and for those that, that haven't picked up an issue of, of Echo Lens, here's the other thing that's so fascinating and unique about it. It's in landscape. Uh, orientation as opposed to, to portrait. So, you know, if you're looking at a, the way a comic normally stands up, you have the spine on the long side. This one, you have the spine on the, on the shorter side. So, you know, kind of the spine along the top, if you will, you turn it 90 degrees and it gives you this big landscape to, uh, you know, to, to give us your, your visuals. That's not normally how a book is is made so were there any challenges in terms of of printing or logistically when you guys decided to do it this way uh as far as i know there's uh i didn't hear anything from image about it being um logistically challenging on a technical level to print um you know there's been landscape books before that use the same spine configuration mm-hmm. uh so I, I i don't think it's that surprise for a printer who probably is printing a wide variety of things besides comics to see something like that, where it became a challenge was in the, uh, on the creative side. So when we first developed Echo Lands, we, it was a format that I was fascinated with, like trying to do something that wasn't a standard shaped comic, uh, just to see what could be done with it. And it was sort of, (laughs) uh, it was sort of just flippantly noted. Uh, And when I mentioned it to Hayden, he's like, Oh, that's, uh, that's really cool. We should try it. And he's, Hayden's always open to anything I want to try in in terms of visual presentation. Um, So he, there was no like, hemming and hawing over trying it. We were just like, Oh, we're just, we're just going to, this is what we're going to do, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is kind of funny when you think about it, because it turned out to be quite challenging uh, on a creative level. So we always set out to do it that way. Um, and when we started writing it, I didn't think about 
the, the, the sideways aspect of it in terms of how we were going to write the pages. Mm-hmm. But as we, when I started drawing the, and I was kind of like, in terms of doing the work, I was like, ah, it's the same. It's the same measurements. They're just in a different configuration. Right. It's like, it's going to be like drawing any other comic. Well, I was seriously wrong. about <laughs> that. It was so challenging, still is challenging. Uh, so there was a big, there was a big steep learning curve as I was going along that really slowed me down on trying to figure out how to make the pages function because after working in comics for such a long time, um, dealing with the standard portraits uh, configuration, when I would think of ideas for layouts for a, a page or whatever, my mind immediately goes to that configuration. It still does. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, less so now, but it still wants It's almost to like that. muscle memory. Yeah. And so when it came time to like, okay, this is what we've written. This is what has to happen on this page or two pages. You know, some of the, some of the way the uh, uh, structure of that in the scripting had to have been influenced by the portrait layout. Mm-hmm. It was inevitable. It's, it's, it's in your subconscious, right? So when, I, when it came time to draw from the script, there was stuff and I'm like, oh, I, I had some ideas on how oh, I could see how this can flow. Like when you move from page one of issue one to pages two and three of issue one, that flow uh, of that, I knew I, I could see that in my head. Um, so that actually wasn't one of the difficult pages to figure out because it, it has a very clear left to right flow. But there's other parts where I'm like, oh, this is not going to work the way we've described it here. How do I reconfigure it uh, for the art? So it became a big creative logistical challenge um, uh, trying to figure out how to make that work. So there's some things that I could do in portrait design that I couldn't do in here, but there's things I could do here that I cannot do in portrait design. So the more, as I went along, I got more and more comfortable, but it took me a longer time to get comfortable with the format, even though it's the format I wanted to do. <laughs> uh, so it was super challenging and a big headache, but at the same time, I'm glad I took on that challenge. But but now I'm kind of spoiled. So like there's thing, if I do something small randomly somewhere else that's back to the portrait style, I'll be like, why can't this be Echo Land style? <laughs> this this idea will work so much better in Echo Land's you know format. So I'm kind of like starting to get into the point where I'm like, you know, I don't know. We're like, well, I, every project they should do should be like this. You know, and I I think what I love about the the landscape thing in terms of uh, the visual the visuals is that sense of flow, that left to right flow is always on my mind much more than ever before. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I do a spread where I'm like, okay, I want to interrupt that flow and force you to go left, right, you know, mm-hmm. where I clearly cut it out. But there's, I, I do always like that sense of trying to make it feel like there's this fluidity to it. Um, uh, 
but at the same time, you know, there's things where I, we're even still in the writing process. We, we had to change the way we wrote some scenes as we went along where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's not going to work in the port this portrait style. How do I, how do I adjust to that? Which is, you know, I guess it's good because it always exercises the mind, you know, mm-hmm. you're not too comfortable in what you're, you're doing. Uh, so I, I, and the other thing it does for us is because the type, the nature of the story is this epic fiction stuff, lots of myth aspects to it, this feeling of mythicness, epicness. So the landscape flow, the, focusing on that left to right, kind of enhances that about it. You know, um, I know that was a long rambling answer, but I do like how it, it, it serves the tale we're telling if that makes sense no it does it does you actually answered my that question and the next question i was going to ask so that's (laughs) fantastic and here here's the other thing that i'll I'll mention to you um jim because you may not be aware of this so uh i'm still buying the issue well i'm I'm buying the regular and the uncut because i want to see your 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 pencils without the color but i always read it first as the press preview copy that i get you know a week ahead ahead of time and that comes digitally well, here's the thing huh. about that left to right flow digitally. It's, it's amazing. It's almost like a motion comic. Uh, right. So for anybody reading it digitally, I think it, those reveals, cause you don't get the whole, cause yeah. the image is so big, you know, as yes. opposed to when I, when I get a press copy for something else, that's a traditional style. I'm getting the whole page. I'm getting the whole page. I'm getting the whole page. But in terms of what you and Hayden are revealing, because it's that extra long or extra wide image, it's yeah. There's things that I don't necessarily see, you know, when I click over to the next image. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that was very much on my mind uh, in developing the artwork for it. I kind of was like, there was some, there was some trepidation on our part. We're like, well, will this work for digital formats? And I remember having a conversation with upper management at DC long time ago when they made their big push into the digital realm. And I was doing lots of double page spreads early, early on. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to them. I'm like, are you guys going to try to curb me from that? And they were like, it was great. Cause they were like, no, absolutely not. I'm like, good. Because I kind of feel like, no, the technology needs to catch up to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't have to conform to the technology um in order to be creatively uh satisfied and so i kept thinking about that when creating Echolands. and my hope was that it would read in like you were saying like that kind of scroll turn mm-hmm. t- scroll this way i i even was telling people I'm like my hopes are some people hopefully they don't try to read it on their phone they actually read it on something that's sizable right or on their desktop that they could if it's on a, a, a e-reader or something, I don't know how those work very well because I don't have one. I, I like reading my books on in a tactile form. But if you got an e-reader, I imagine it works like your phone where you could turn it sideways and lock it, right? Yeah, it should. Just scroll from left to right. And the shape of Echoland suits that very well. Uh, I heard from somebody who was saying that they really appreciate that the shape works so well on their desktop 
Yeah, that's how I that's how I read my preview copies on my desktop. Nice oh, cool. big screen. Cool. And yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Get to zoom in on your art. And and here's here's the other thing that I wanted to ask you about the the visuals, Jim. It, it, beyond the logistics, um, and and you know you mentioned it's gotten easier and and you're almost spoiled because there's certain things that you can that you can do now um, in the landscape style. But we've talked about how Echo Lens is such a mashup of so many different things. So in, in terms of your visuals, is that a challenge to balance to make sure you're not leaning too far into one genre or, or the other? Um, or, or is that just, does that come subconsciously to you? I'd say it comes subconscious. Um, what I, I think the biggest thing I fight against consciously is because um, in, in previous things I've done, I've changed the style of a character in one shot to another, depending on what I'm trying to gain out of that shot. I might do little subtle differences to the character uh, with a technique or texture or something, even though it's the same character you saw on the very panel before it Mm -hmm. to gain a different emotionality on this. I can't do that. I have to be much more rigid and stay true to the character, no matter what they're doing, when and where. So I have a, uh, I've, I find myself fighting the saying, oh, this shot of, of hope, this would be so great if it was all rough and super textured. But I think it would defeat the purpose of what we're doing uh, with the story if I did right. that. So I have to find other ways to gain um, a, a, whatever emotional sensibility I'm trying to get out of it in a different way. So I stay true to the characters no matter the shot. Um, the, the stuff that we're trying to do it kind of is a little bit evident in a couple scenes towards the end of the first arc is not necessarily, now that we've established the characters, is not necessarily always hold true to their true color palette. So mm-hmm. to allow a scene, and Dave did this very effectively in uh, parts of the end of parts of issue four and parts of issue five, where he used um, an overall tone for a scene, even though the characters still have whatever color design textures we've settled on are still present, but we've now allowed ourselves to, to create a different emotionality by using a like an over-encompassing hue on a scene, um, which I think is good. So it allows us to, to have a little bit more maneuverability instead of just everything being in true color all the time. So... Yeah, and that's Dave Stewart, the the color artist on on the project. How much back and forth um, do you and Dave have uh, once you turn over the the line art? Like, do you have a a really good idea uh, in terms of of what the colors should look like? Do you let Dave just do his thing? Like, what is that uh, collaborative process like? Uh, it's very much a collaborative uh, conversation process. So, um, uh since I put so much design thought into the pages, I have to think about color mm-hmm. to some degree. Uh, sometimes I'm not, uh, I don't think about it in large in very definitive terms. Sometimes they're more vague terms, but I have to think about it because the color plays such an important role in what the scene needs to evoke mm-hmm. either emotionally or stylistically. So I always, as after I scan the pages, I write up notes for each page. Some of them are simple. Some of them are very long and explanatory because there might be a ton of different new ideas that we hadn't seen before. I have to explain, you know, I send him the scripts too, but sometimes it's easier for him 
to just have a little note. I'm like, this is this because of this. Mm-hmm. And he goes, ah, okay, got it. Uh, and there's, so there's times where I'm very specific and other times where I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. Maybe this, maybe that. What do you think? Right. And then he'll look at the, look it over. Then we'll get on the phone and talk it through again. And I'll pick his brain or he'll pick my brain about different scenes or different ideas. And then, uh, then he goes and does his thing with it, um, comes back to me. And that's where we review for, uh, because Echolands is so detailed uh, in terms of the world building stuff. One of the challenging things about the series and the visuals is because, especially because we jump scenes a lot and locations a lot, I can never forego the opportunity to sell the location. Hmm to sell the world. So there's very few scenes where I drop backgrounds out because no, the, the rolling is seeing this, this place for so many pages, there's backgrounds got to be in every shot. And so that makes things a little more complicated for the color to such an extent to where Dave is very gracious and allows me to look over the pages in their, um, their work format mm-hmm. where he's got everything all layered out. So I can, go and make little tweaks and fix things that like, Oh, that object is actually this, or that object is part of this or whatever, little subtle things like that. But any bigger changes, I might have an idea or I'll show an example of an idea in that, that uh, document he sends. And then we'll talk it out. Cause you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure if that's well, why, what he always, he always does great work. It's always cool. But sometimes there's instances where I'm like, I'm not sure maybe we could push it in this direction Mm -hmm. and we'll have that conversation. Uh, A great example of this is uh, back to the Meta Maru mountain stuff. When we get to the Bancho, the whole idea of these, the sand, the silica is, is the Bancho. When he turned over the pages for that, he had color uh, to it. But he had this interesting, this layer that was sort of was like a sand tone layer that muted his color a little bit. Mm-hmm. And me just looking around, because I, I, I was looking for something a little bit more vivid, like the robots themselves. Um, and so I just was like messing around with his, his file and clicked that layer off. I didn't get rid of it. I just like made it to where I couldn't see it and saw the color underneath it, which was had more uh, more vividness. And I'm like, oh, that's that's what I see in my head. That's mm-hmm. what I was envisioning. And then so I would get on the phone. I'm like, hey, you know, what do you think of that? And he's like, oh, that looks really cool, you know. So it's like this very much this uh, collaborative conversation to get the end result, which is great. I mean, I, uh, to me, that's how you get the best results is from people being able to navigate back and forth. Uh, rather than one person being like, no, it has to be this way or, or whatever. And there's times where I'm even like, if you got an idea for something that I haven't thought of, you know, tell me, yeah, let me hear it. So is there something you want to try that we haven't tried, you know? Um, Yeah. 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 I think it it works on that level for sure, because here's the thing, like I I think, and, and obviously we, we know black and white comics exist or grayscale. And so sequential storytelling can, can work without color. And I think color evokes mood and emotion so well. 
Uh, but you know, if you're just telling like a Batman story or Superman story, we're just so familiar with those characters. We sort of understand their emotionality as a subconscious level, as a fan or a longtime comic reader. First of all, the story that you and Hayden are telling is so grounded in emotion with what Hope and her group is going through, but they're also new characters as well. So I think the emotionality of the story is that much more important. And in turn, the color work that Dave is doing that you're yeah. kind of collaborating with him on is also so much more important. And again, it's very uh, evident in what we were talking about with the, the universal monster stuff and the way that evokes that, you know, that callback to yeah. you know, these old school black and white monster movies. Yeah. And there, there's two interesting things about what you're hitting on there. So um, another thing, a great example of mine and Dave's uh, conversations as we work together on this stuff is the, the scene in issue five when Hope and Cora have their intimate moment and have a, a breather to, to show us and themselves, you know, what they mean to each other. I knew when I drew that scene, I, I wasn't sure if it was should be cool tones or warm tones, but I told Dave I'm leaning towards warm tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all I said about it. And then when he turned it over, he used uh, like a lot of red, red, reds and pinks and stuff. And I kind of surprised me at first. I was like, huh. And I, I was a little worried that it would enter, maybe speak too much to her little flash that she has mm-hmm. about being lost in her power, which she calls the red. But at the same time, it really warmed the scene up in a kind of a romantic way. Uh, and so when I first saw it, I was kind of surprised and uh, wasn't sure if those two things should be a little bit more separated in tone, uh, to, to, uh, color choices uh, than they were. And I, so I said, what do you, you know, what do you think about that? And he says, well, if we, he says, we certainly could push the scenes with core to have more of a yellow side. He says, but that might feel it, you know, his insight was that might make it feel more uh, fiery and less romantic, less soft. Mm. And he was right. And so I'm like, okay, then we're going to leave it as is. We're, you know, this is a great, great call. So that's a great example of our conversations on making a final decision. Uh, now the stuff with Rosa and the Horror Hill stuff, that was interesting because every time I drew her, using the wash tones, I was never satisfied. Same with uh, Torch Grinder at first. I was never satisfied. And on, so every time I, I drew her, I'm like, nope, that rendering level has to be stepped up. It has to have more tone, something about it. And that really hit home when the first pages came in for issue two, when we really get to see her full on for the first time. She just looked really uh too stark she was too almost felt like a, a cutaway and so that also told me i'm like okay i need to bring more tone because in my initial notes to for her i was like don't put any color on her just leave the art raw mm-hmm. and that was not a good choice in those first illustrations because i hadn't put enough tone on her and so when dave turned over the color he had followed that notion of just keeping it raw 
uh, and I, I talked to, you know, we got on the phone. I'm like, ah, something about that's driving me nuts. And I'm like, does it feel like she's not part of the scene to you? And he's like, yeah, I think you're right about that. And so we added tone to her. I added like uh, in the files he sent me, I added more tone. I'm like, we got to do more like this. And so it also taught, taught me a lesson having that interaction with him that, no, the for each time I draw her, I need to be more mindful of how much tone on the original art. So it's less of a worry when mm-hmm. we get the color in it. I think we, we finally have gotten it where like it, when you look at the, the pages for issue six, it's a much more closer uh, to the original art uh, with all those tones on that stuff. It's a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine so. <laughs> a lot more work. Uh uh, and Dave even was like, he's like, you could just just draw her like usual and leave it up to me. And then, but then he he quickly's like, no, don't do that because <laughs> he, he he I think he could understand I'm trying to go for a certain uh, feel mm-hmm. that it you know it just needs to be on the board. So every time, yeah. So that was a fascinating learning lesson as we went along how the process evolved in, from working with him in the color. Uh, you know, how the art needed to change in order to accommodate certain effects that we're trying to get. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying about this being your, your best work. You're certainly not cutting any corners. And it, again, just, just like with the story, how it's, you know, so many different eclectic narrative ideas, you know, you've got so many ideas uh, visually and, and, and you guys are just nailing it. Uh, and and uh, I got a, a comment on kind of that scene with core and hope when they're kind of catching their breath, as you said, it, it, that, that scene inspired my favorite line when they go back to the group and, uh, and Rosa said, geez, Corey, you must be shooting dust by now. <laughs> I, I laughed out loud at that one. That was good. That yeah, was that, uh, that was a pretty funny line. Hayden came up with that line for sure. <laughs> After he wrote it, he was like, uh, I didn't comment on it. And he was like, he's like, do you think it's okay to, to be crass like that? I'm like, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was it was fantastic. So, uh, second arc, do we know? Do we have uh, any dates? Uh, even kind of uh, summer, fall? Like, what, when when will we uh, expect a return? Do you have any idea? I'm not sure. I'm in the middle of issue seven. Um, uh, I thought I'd be much further along. Well, not in the middle. I'm on the tail end of issue seven. I'm working on pages 18 and 19. I started today. Uh, for issue seven, but I still have the cover and back matter to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do on it. Uh, and then we have to move on to issue eight. So we haven't quite figured out how to handle the schedule for arc two yet, mm-hmm. but it is coming. So anybody who's concerned about it evaporating, it's not going to evaporate. Um, image is being super graceful about the thing, situation. They're like, you know, it takes as long as it takes yeah and particularly with the horror hill stuff now that we've moved into horror hill talking a little bit about dealing with that style mm-hmm. i mean there's spreads on here they're taking two weeks or more well yeah for, for two pages mm-hmm. um so when you do the math on that and we lost a lot weird we did we lost time even though we worked so far in advance we lost time 
as we start rolling the issues out, uh, there's things in the um, logistical side that I didn't even know I was going to have to deal with mm-hmm. that eat up time, little, little time losses here and there dealing with the logistics of rolling the issues out um, that, you know, probably at some place like DC, that's all handled by an editor. Right. You know, um, we're, we're here, we're kind of left to our own devices. And so <laughs> it's so funny because as I'm working along, I'm like, Oh my God, the time is just going away. <laughs> you know, uh, for a, a while, it still bugs me a little bit, but there's nothing I can do about it. But for a while, I, it was really stressing me out. Uh, uh, that we, you know, lost all of our gains in terms of time. Uh, but Eric Stevenson didn't, didn't seem concerned about it, which was very helpful. And my wife, you know, kept telling me, she's like, is there anything you could do differently? Is there anything you can do about it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and she's yeah. like, well, then you just have to, to go with it. And hopefully readers will be patient with that. I've heard from a few readers, you know, when I've talked about how long it's taking to do some of the pages, there's been a few readers who are like, don't rush, don't rush. Because they want the best that we can do. I think so. Yeah. So as a fan, as a reader, you know, if my opinion matters, I would rather have you take as long as it takes, you know, to do your best work. It's clearly a passion project that you and Hayden love and much better, you know, as, as somebody who's done comic press for 10 years, much better for you guys when the second arc starts to be released, that there won't be any breaks, you know, take, take right. long breaks between the arcs, but don't, yeah. don't take breaks between, cause that's where you lose momentum. You know, yeah. what I mean, you know what I mean? So, you know, if you can give us one through six within, you know, six, eight months, great. Do the same, you know, even if it takes a year, do the same with, you know, eight, yeah. with, uh, seven through 12. Yeah. Um, Cause that's yeah. where you, that's where you will lose readers. But as long as we're getting, you know, the six issues within, you know, six to eight months, cause then you don't lose the momentum of, of the story. So that's yeah. been my experience anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's, it's tough, you know. Um, I, I wish the work didn't take as long as it does, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, world building takes up so much time, <laughs> and then dealing with the format, the unique format, the lar- the slightly larger page count, uh, the back back matter. It's just astounding how fast time time moves along. Yeah, I just finished a page. Uh, yesterday that's not in horror hill uh and for whatever reason i don't know why but it's, it took me just as long <laughs> i was complaining to my wife about it. i'm like i don't know what as the page took me just as long well no, 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 it should have been simple <laughs> well good work takes time um and i I, 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 we do have to mention one more thing. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but oh, you know, we, we mentioned, we mentioned Dave Stewart. We got to mention the legendary Todd Klein because I, oh, yeah. I don't know if you feel this way about letterers, but I feel like they're like uh, NFL referees or, or major league baseball umpires. <laughs> if you're talking about them, it's because they did a bad job, you know, <laughs> but when they do their job, right. They're in the background uh-huh. and they don't get any credit for doing their job. Right. That's yeah. how letterers are. Nobody will say anything about a letterer if he does his job perfectly well and it doesn't pull you out of the story, but if the lettering is not done right, then everybody's jumping all over. Him. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. 
and Todd's such a master. I mean, what I love about my my uh, relationship with Todd is ever since we first got connected together on uh, way way back when we got when we worked together is how open and receptive he is to some an idea I might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes sense when you think about it because the body of his work outside of anything we've done together, how inventive and creative he is. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if I present an idea to him that uh, isn't just standard lettering, he's like, oh, cool. I get to do something that's, you know, I can put more thought into. I think he he probably enjoys that a lot. And so with Echolands, with Echolands being so diverse in genre and character, you know, I wanted to try to take advantage of that as much as possible to where some characters uh, have a very distinct either balloon color or font style. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we look for any opportunity to kind of present that so he can be as creative as he, as he, as he wants to be. Um, and uh, even to the point where we said, okay, I don't know why, but for the heck of it, I'm like, Echolands shouldn't have round balloons. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, they should be squarish, uh, which I didn't think about at the time. It was sort of like a gut thing that was mm-hmm. going on for that. But I didn't think about about at the time. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. If they're squarish, they're a little bit rectangular. Right. Like, the book is rectangular. The, yeah, right? it goes the landscape format. Yeah. Which is, I'm, I'm glad we decided to go that route. Uh, uh, I've never asked him how he feels about me doing my own sound effects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if he, if he feels I'm stepping on his toes at all, or if he's like, no, that's one less thing he has to do. <laughs> uh, but I always do my own sound effects because I, I want them to feel as much uh, integrated into the storytelling as possible. Uh, more interactive uh, like a lot of the old comics you know a lot of the sound effects lettering was so much more interactive than you see today um, yeah I feel like you definitely have a, an Eisner influence what I love is the way you incorporate the issue number into the oh, cool. first double page uh, arc that you do I was like oh that that's very Eisner like to, to integrate it that way yeah it was funny because um I'm so used to working on comics that had, uh, you know, a different title for each chapter, right? Like a traditional novel would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when I did Salmon Overture and I started doing the artwork for Salmon Overture, um, Neil just handed me, you know, he handed me a script and I, when I started drawing, I'm like, I'm not, I noticed that there's no issue. There's no title for this chapter. And, uh, and he was like, I'm like, what, what are you going to have a title? Are you going to, are you just waiting? To, I, I would like to know that now mm-hmm. you're put a title so I can work, think about that in the layout. Right. And, uh, and he was like, no, I no title. I'm like, okay, well, what if we just say chapter one, chapter two and chapter three and so on, and I can work that in. And he's like, sounds great. Go for it. Mm-hmm. And so when it came down to working on Echolands, we kind of ended up falling into the same. At first we talked about like maybe each issue should be named after a song. Mm. Uh, We thought about that at one point, but then for whatever reason, we just never 
never went through with that and never came up with an issue title. Uh, so I'm like, oh, well, let's, you know, let's keep it simple. The story in a lot of ways is a fast paced story. So it has a lot of directness in that regard. So let's keep, let's keep titles out of it. And just, mm-hmm. use, and I decided to make, to use the, the issue number thing mm-hmm. kind of inspired by the whole idea of what, you know, Sam and Overture Day where they were like, no, there is no titles. It's chapter one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If it's good enough for Neil Gaiman, I guess. Right. <laughs> good okay. enough for Echo Lads. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, it'll be kind of clever as, you know, we can make that part. One of the shapes of the panels is that rather mm-hmm. than trying to put, put, uh, put it as a uh, caption or anything like mm-hmm. that. This is, kind of like you like you had mentioned earlier real estate page real estate is so you know vital mm-hmm. and, and and more even i feel like even more so on this book i feel this book the page real estate is as daunting as any of the page real estate we had on promethea or on salmon overture that i i don't I don't want to lose page real estate for the visuals just mm-hmm. to accommodate a story title yeah, right? makes sense. Or, or a caption saying this is chapter four or whatever. How can I integrate it to be part of the, the visual layout and the art? And that's what led to that. Uh, just keeping it simple. We'll see how effective that gets you know, when we hit double digits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. A good point. Uh, well, Jim, it's been so great talking to you. Look forward to the return of Echo Lands. We'll certainly be letting everybody know when it's, uh, when it's coming back out. Definitely a highest possible recommendation. If you're listening to this, you haven't checked it out, go pick it up digitally. As I said, it reads very well digitally. Go pick up the trade. It's uh, it's very much worth your time. It lends itself to a lot of rereadings as, as Jim and I have talked about. Uh, anything else you want to share with our listeners as we're closing out here? No, just uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope I didn't ramble on too much. I, I've said this in other, other interviews. I tend to ramble on. <laughs> uh, I, I guess because I always have a hard time feeling like I'm conveying myself thoroughly. So I ramble. Um, uh, and that, that I hope they pick up Echolands, you know, um, and write to me. Let me know if you like it or not. Yeah. Now, are you... Uh active on social media can someone reach out there and and let give give yeah, you, I can, your thoughts yeah i'm on twitter i can be found on twitter uh i'm on instagram and uh or they could email me at the red hood club at gmail.com great and i'll put a i'll put a link to the red mail club as well as to uh jh's uh, instagram and twitter in the show notes everybody so you can go and follow there uh any plans i know we're still kind of in the middle of this pandemic any plans for uh for conventions I know you mentioned not getting that much feedback necessarily. Is that something that you hoping to get in the future with doing some cons and get some face-to-face time with fans? Uh, no conventions planned. Uh, I've had some invites, especially now that the, you know, the pandemic is hopefully really, really winding down. Uh, but I'm not going to be making any, making any public appearances probably this year, maybe next year. Uh, for, not just because of pandemic, but also for logistical reasons. This is one of the reasons why I started backing out, out of doing things like uh, San Diego convention, because um, the amount of time I would lose for my projects mm-hmm. and it takes me a long time already. It became difficult to, to justify. Yeah. It's, it sucks because I don't get to interact with the fans as much. Um, 
which I always liked being able to have conversations to such an extent, like, you know, a lot of artists will go to conventions and they'll set up a commissions list and they'll mm-hmm. do all these commissions. Uh, for a long time when I was doing conventions, I decided no one a day because mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to have time to do a nice piece as well as if I need to stop and talk to somebody, I don't mm-hmm. want to be like my nose down on a, on right. a piece of paper when someone's wanting to have, you know, interact with you, you know, that's one thing that I like, I do miss about the conventions is being able to interact with people or see uh, friends I haven't seen in a long mm-hmm. time, but yeah. you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, it's like we we're saying, you already feel like you don't have enough time. If only you could clone yourself, like, send right. you medical, <laughs> like, uh, like multiple man, right? So you send them out to the convention, you come back and reabsorb them. You have all the memories. That right. <laughs> right. yeah, would be fantastic. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to be able to do that myself. I could send my clone to work my day job while I could fo- focus more on reading more comics and doing more interviews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but again, uh, Jim, so great to have you. Big, big fan of, of your work and Echo Lands, uh, especially. Uh, and just to let everybody know, Hayden was planning on being here, but uh, he had a last minute conflict. So hopefully when the, the time comes, whether it's uh, next year, later this year, or what have you, uh, ARC 2, hopefully we'll be able to have Hayden on as well. So uh, again, Jim, thank you so much. Uh, it's been fantastic chatting. And to all you fans, I cannot stress it enough. Go check out Echo Lands. It's very much worth your time. So thanks to everybody for joining and for listening. As always, we appreciate your support and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.